If you have your copy of Scripture, go to Acts chapter 6. We'll be in Acts chapter 6 and 7 as we continue uh, the series in the book of Acts. Thinking about this week, the, the, the book of Acts is somewhat like a book of first uh, because it introduces us to some things uh, for the very first time. For instance, in, in chapter 1, we have the first time that ministry uh, was entrusted completely to men and women after Jesus uh, ascended back into heaven. In, in chapter 2, we see that the first time the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all flesh, and the first time that the gifts of the Spirit were in operation, as well as the first time that the gospel, a gospel message was preached and, and converts were added to the church. In chapter 3, we, we see the heal, in the healing of a lame man, we see the first miracle of the early church. In chapter 4, uh, we, we looked at the first time opposition uh, came against the early church from the critics and skeptics and the unbelievers. In chapter 5, we looked at a very sobering passage of the first judgment of the early church when God took out a man and woman by the name of Anna and Sapphira uh, for their sin of lying and deceiving. And today in chapter 6 and 7, we're, we're going to see the, the first martyr of the early church, and his name is Stephen. Now, a, a martyr is, is a person who voluntarily dies for what they hold to be true. In the Greek, the, the word martyr actually comes from uh, the, the word, a word for witness or testifier. You may remember uh, that, that Stephen, from the last time we talked about, uh, was, he was one of the seven original deacons that were hand-selected uh, by, by the apostles to help with the daily ministry of the needs of the early church. The early church was beginning to increase, and, 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 and when that happens in a church, when numerical growth happens, uh, at the same time, so do the needs and the problems in the church. And so uh, the, the apostles wanted to devote themselves to, the, to prayer and the teaching of the word, and so uh, the, they, at the same time, they didn't want the people's needs to be neglected, and so they raised up some people, some deacons, and Stephen was one of the men that they raised up. But as we're about to see, Stephen was the very first Christian martyr. And his death uh, brings both a challenge and a word of encouragement to all those who follow Jesus. Because he gives us a real-life example of how Jesus' victory over death changes the way we as Christians can view death. The thing is, you, you may not want to think about death or dying right now, but you should because statistically, the latest statistics reveal that one out of one of us is going to die. And Hebrews chapter 9, 27 says, it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. So you better live ready <laughs> because eternity is at stake. But, but another reason we need to think about the end uh, is, is the thing about dying is, is that it can help us to be better focused or more focused on what really matters and to be present in the present. And Stephen, we see a man. Stephen was a man who lived like Christ, spoke like Christ, and died like Christ. In Acts 6, verse 5, uh, Luke described him as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, pretty cool in, in, inscription to have on a tombstone, right? He's full of faith. 
and the Holy Spirit. But in verse 8, he adds to that. He said, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. And so we have this description of a man who was literally filled to the brim with faith, grace, and power. Stephen has absolute confidence in God's promise of forgiveness, and he was fully aware that his salvation was totally undeserved. It wasn't anything that he had done. One commentary I read this week uh, said that he was right with God and you could see it on his face. You know anybody like that? There's no counting. Wherever he went, he radiated and reflected the grace and the love of Jesus. He hurt with the hurting. and He extended love to anyone who would receive it. Now, what I've noticed about people like this over the years, people who really understand forgiveness and grace, the people I run into in life that really understand, have a great grasp of that, is I notice that they, they are people that really enjoy life. They live life to the full. I mean, they, they know that this world is not their final destination, but they live this life. They see their life with purpose, and that they got a plan for their life, and so they live this life with full ghost, gusto. Uh, they're, they're wholly present in the present, and they walk, as they walk with God through the challenges of life. What Stephen was, Stephen walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. When he prayed for people, they got better. When he touched them, they were healed. In verse 8, where you continue to read that, it says, He performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. And to some people, he was a huge source of blessing, but to others, uh, he was a threat. And we see that as evidence is in verse uh, 9 and 10, and here's where tension enters into the story uh, when some unbelieving Jews begin to oppose Stephen and, and they want to debate with him, but they soon discover uh, that they're no match for him, that, that none of them can stand against his wisdom and against the, the spirit that empowered what he would say. And on top of everything else, we see that Stephen was a man who knew what he believed, and he was well able to defend his beliefs. He wasn't afraid of debate because he was convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel, but, but he wasn't just a man who could win an argument. I mean, I know people that can win an argument. You know, they can beat me up and they can beat the tar out of me on debate. The thing is, a bit now, there's people that, that are good arguers, people that can be good debaters, the thing that was different about Stephen, it wasn't that he was just good with words, but that it was that his life backed up what he believed. You can't argue with that. Stephen totally lived out what, what Peter said in, in 1 Peter 3, 15, that says, says this. It says, honor Christ and let him be the Lord of your life. Always be ready to give an answer when someone asks you about your hope. I mean, that, that should be every one of our, our goals of our life, that, that we honor Christ with our lives, that we let him be the Lord of our life and always that we're ready to give an answer when someone asks you about your hope. Stephen knew what he believed, and, and, and since these unbelievers, unbelieving Jews couldn't debate him, couldn't out-debate him, they, they started lying in order to destroy him. And you see that in verse 11. So they persecuted uh, some men that they persuaded, not persecuted. They persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, "We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God." 
And this roused the people, the elders and the teachers of the religious law. And so they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. Verse 13 says, the lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking uh, against the holy temple and against the law of God. Verse 14, we've even heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that, that Moses handed down to us, which all was totally a lie. It was a total lie. I mean, I mean, it was true that Stephen probably quoted Jesus a lot. And when, when like, like the time when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it in three days. But, but Jesus wasn't talking about a physical temple. He was talking uh, about his body and the resurrection. Or when Jesus talked about the law, and he said, you, you've heard, you've heard it, that, that it was said of old that you shall not kill, but I tell you that anyone who hates their brother is guilty of murder. But in that instance, Jesus wasn't saying that the law of Moses was no longer valid. He just expounded uh, on the law. He expanded the law, and he said the law was meant to speak to our attitudes and our actions as well. Stephen also probably quoted Jesus when he said that no one could be saved by the law, by going to church or going to the temple, that this, that this new law would be written, that it would be tattooed on the heart of everyone who trusted Christ, and, and that our bodies would be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Truth is, this was not any misunderstanding. The, the, they, the enemies of God were twisting Stephen's words just like they twisted the words of Jesus, and they were using it as a support uh, of, in their charge of blasphemy. Notice verse 15 says, At this point, everyone in the high council uh, stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel. And I'm not sure if this was something supernatural like the glow of Moses when, when after his encounter with God on Mount Sinai or if Stephen uh, just had that look of confidence. I mean, he wasn't freaking out like the other prisoners that would be brought before the high council. He stood there with, con with just confidence. Turn over to chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest asked Stephen, are, are these accusations true? And it's at this point that, that Stephen uh, sees a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to address the, the most powerful, influential men in all of Israel. And so instead of defending himself, he launches a, into a history lesson that will demonstrate to the Jewish leaders that, that had totally misunderstood the Old Testament. And because they totally misunderstood the New Testament, they, they totally misunderstood Jesus. And so Stephen begins to go down a history lesson, and his argument is actually in the form of a sermon. Uh, he establishes three points, and the first one is this. It's in your notes that, that God's ultimate plan well, it was not the temple. His ultimate plan was Christ and his kingdom. Second, that throughout history, God had blessed Israel regardless of whether or not they had a temple. And the third thing, the third point was this, is that Israel has always attempted. They had a history of, 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 of attempting to frustrate God's plan. But not all of Israel. Just like today, there were two groups of people. There were the righteous and the rebellious. And so for the next 
50 plus verses, which we won't read all of, Stephen presents an argument that backs up those, these three points. Now, I'm going to point something out before we go into verse 2, because I just want to point out that, that Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. And what, what that means is that he was a Jew by birth, but he was Greek by culture. And that's significant when you, in a couple of verses. In verse 2, he says this. He addresses the Sanhedrin as brothers and fathers. And that, again, that's going to be, that as brother, you're my brother, brothers and fathers. This is going to be significant later on. He says, brothers and fathers, our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham. And God told Abraham, leave your native land and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And so Abraham left his family and everything that was familiar to him to journey to an unknown land that God was showing. And eventually he arrived in the land in which Stephen and the Jewish leaders were living. But Abraham never inherited the land himself, but his descendants did that just as God promised that Abraham would be the father of many that would be a part of this land but but it wasn't about the land I I mean the the land was a major benefit to Abraham's descendants but but the main idea here is that God was God was after a relationship with Israel that was the most important thing but but the Jewish leaders of Stephen's day missed it and they became so focused on the religion encapsulated uh, with the law, land, and the temple that they had forgotten the fact that God was after relationship. Stephen wanted wanted them to see that that, that though the temple is a special place of worship, it's not really the home of God. And he begins to walk, verses 8 through 16, he, he begins to play out this story of the descendants that from Abraham... Isaac and Jacob descended the 12 patriarchs. In verse 9, he says that these patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. Anybody ever want to sell you a little brother? Yeah. I remember having a brother like that. And Joseph was carried off to Egypt where he was mistreated and forgotten, but, but God was with him. And as Joseph waited on God to deliver him, God used the evil intentions of his brothers to fulfill his ultimate plan. Remember, God had a plan. God had a plan. And just like he said he would, God protected the descendants of the Hebrew nation by elevating Joseph as second in command of all of Egypt so that he could provide shelter for his brothers and for the people of Israel. It leads to our first takeaway, and it's this, is that God is at work even when we can't see it. God is at work, even when we can't see it. And we, we need to remember that. We talk about this often. Because we, we sometimes forget that, and we begin to freak out, or we begin to manipulate things. We get tired of waiting, and we, we get ahead of God. Anybody ever done that? I know you have. I have, too. Joseph waited on God. In Genesis 50, verse 20, he tells his brothers, you intended to harm me. But God's got a plan, and God intended it all for good. He brought me to the position so that I could save the lives of many people. And so for the next 400 years, the nation of Israel flourished in the protective, fertile region of Egypt. So much so that the Egyptians began to fear them, and their hosts became their captors. Look at verse 18. 
But then they had an election. <laughs> and a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And this king exploited our people and he oppressed them. He forced parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born. A beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. Verse 21. And then they had they had and when they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. We see that God used the Egyptians to protect, raise, and equip Moses for leadership to one day deliver and free Israel from slavery. But Moses was like us. He, he wasn't perfect. In fact, no one that God uses is. Moses did what we do sometimes. He, he only obeyed God partially. Meaning that, that he tried to deliver Israel apart from the, the, the power and the direction of God. And in the process, the people of Israel rejected their Savior. Leads to our second takeaway, which is this is that partial obedience is always equal to disobedience. Partial obedience is always equal to disobedience. God doesn't bless partial obedience. He doesn't allow it. He's not going to bless us. For, we just kind of pick and choose the parts of Scripture that we agree with or that fit our lifestyle. Don't expect God's blessing there. But watch this. But even when we blow it, even when we disobey, even when we, we are rebellious, our rebellion cannot stop the sovereign plan of God. Now, that may cost us personally. It probably will cost us personally. We probably won't be a part of that. But your rebellion and my rebellion is not going to stop the sovereign plan of God. Mo Moses, so... Moses tries to lead without God, and he ends up killing an Egyptian guard that was beating the tar out of one of the Israel slaves. And out of fear, he flees to a place called Midian, and it's there that Moses has an encounter with God. While he's there, God initiates a relationship with Moses outside of the promised land. Stephen uses this illustration to illustrate to the high council that the land where God appeared to Moses was holy ground. That, that the land and the temple is only holy if God is there, if God is present. And so after 40 years of being in the desert, God sends Moses back to liberate his people from the captors and to lead them to the land that he had promised to Abraham. But the Israelites uh, left Captivity kicking and screaming and bickering with Moses. And not only did they carry with them uh, the, the idols that they had worshipped in Egypt, but along the way they began to construct new idols. Because again, Israel many times like us was fighting against God's plan. But even so, God continued to be faithful. He continued to protect and provide for his people and, and led them to the land that he had promise to Abraham. But not all the people got to enter it. In fact, there was a time when God had to push pause and for a whole generation to die off. Verse 44, Stephen says that our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It, it was a portable temple. It was church in a box. Kind of reminded me back to the high school days where we 
unloaded every week. It was a portable temple, and he carried that they carried the tabernacle with them to the wilderness, and it was constructed according to the plan that God had shown Moses. And years later, when Joshua, verse 45, when years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that the God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. Remember him? And David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who actually built it. And to the Jewish leaders that had lost sight of what God uh, was, was after, that they, they lost God uh, to why God had built the temple, Stephen says that the Most High God does not live in temples made by human hands. And there he quotes the psalmist that says, the heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. In other words, that the temple or a church building today is, it may be a special place, but it's not God. In fact, God, God isn't really concerned about where his people worship as much as he is in how they worship. In fact, Jesus one day is talking about in John 4, 20 through 24, this is a message that Jesus said the time is coming. In fact, it's here when, when what you're called will not matter and where you go to worship will not matter, it's who you are and the way you live that will count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That, that's the kind of people the Father is out looking for, those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship and adoration. Stephen's message was clear and, and, and to the point, again, there's three points, that from the beginning, God's ultimate plan was Christ and his kingdom, not the temple, and that, that God's been faithful to bless Israel, whether or not they had a temple, but, but Israel has always resisted and fought against God's plan. And in verse 51, Stephen's about to tick them off. But he says, all those rebellious people I told you about that were trying to thwart God's plans, you're part of that group too. Look at verse 51. You stubborn people, you're a heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Now, notice the, the switch from our ancestors in verse 2 to your ancestors in verse 51. We talked about that earlier, and here's the reason why that the reason for the switch is because they had rejected the Messiah, so he no longer identified with them as brothers. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You're just like your fathers who refused to listen. God was speaking, but you turned your ear. You put your fingers in your ear. You couldn't listen. Which leads to the third takeaway that it's possible, we've talked about that it's possible for you and I to resist the Holy Spirit. And when we do, the consequences for us resisting the Spirit of God can be dangerous, disastrous. I mean, we, we can bow our back and be stubborn and not respond to what God says in His Word. We, we can resist the conviction and leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when we do, there will be consequences for us doing that. 
We reap the consequences for our actions. But it's a choice. We can either choose to obey or disobey. And when we choose to obey God, we leave all the consequences up to God. Charles Stanley used to say it all the time, obey God and leave the consequences to God. Just obey God. Now that's where Stephen is right here. He's on a roll, and he ain't backing down to verse 52. He says, name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, uh, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. <coughs> and you can imagine how well that went over with the religious leaders of verse 54 says the leader, Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. They're getting angrier by the minute. And for the fourth time, Luke describes Stephen as being completely yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit that in response to the seething fury of the religious leaders, verse 55 says, Stephen, full of the Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. He, he calmly focused on his Savior, and he narrated, get an ongoing narration of what he was seeing. And he said, I see Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And that, that's significant there. Uh, normally, when you think of Jesus, you think of him sitting at the right hand of God. His work is finished, and he's taken his place. But, 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 but the fact that Jesus is standing leads us to believe that, one, either Jesus was rising in Stephen's defense <coughs> or that he's rising to welcome him home. Stephen's given a narration of what he saw, and the leaders go into a fit of fury. Verse 57, they began to put their hands over the ears, and they and began shouting, and they rushed him, and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, which, by the way, was not part of the procedure. That, that was illegal for them to do that, but they weren't worried about following procedure. And it's this point that Luke tells us that the Israel, that Israel's finest and most respected leaders turned into an impulsive, angry lynch mob. And they dragged Stephen out of the city and they began to stone him. And stoning was hard work. Stoning was a long, hot ordeal. That's why Luke, it's, it's clear to tell us in verse 58 that his accusers took off their coats. And they laid him at the feet of a young man named Saul. From this point on, Saul will play a major role in the story of the overthrowing church. We'll later find out that, that Saul was a Pharisee from Tarsus who was a star student of the most respected rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. Well, one commentary stated that, 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 that Saul was most likely the instigator of this trial, that, that, that from a distance, from the shadows, he, he led a conspiracy on behalf, behalf of the high priest who in turn answered to a man by the name of Annas 
who is the godfather of the corrupt temple officers and religious leaders who together had one common enemy. There was one opposition that they were united about. They may not have agreed about anything else, but they agreed about this fact that that the, the followers of Jesus were the enemy. That that was the opposition. They were standing in the way of them continuing to to, to pad their pockets and to benefit off of the people. They were an enemy. They they were an opposition that, that wasn't like the others. I mean, everybody else, they could intimidate and they could silence, but with these Jesus followers, they were different. I mean, you could arrest them, you could beat them, you could demand them to stop talking about Jesus, but 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 they, they would they, they would walk away beaten, bruised, praising God, and get right back on the street corner and began talking about Jesus. They couldn't intimidate them, but so when they couldn't intimidate them, what they did is they began to lie about them. They began to discredit them, saying that, that they were enemies of Judaism. And most likely, Saul didn't play an, an official role in the case as a prosecutor or witness. But Luke underscores his presence during the events. According to Jewish law, the, the witnesses against the accused were to cast the first stones and so after they took off their outer garments they began to throw stones at Stephen verse 59 and they and as they stoned him Stephen prayed Lord Jesus receive my spirit he fell to his knees shouting Lord don't charge them with this sin who does that sound like with these words and with that he died and we're left with an incredible story of an incredible man a man named Stephen who lived like Christ spoke like Christ and died like Christ and, and his blood along with the other martyrs after his is the seed for the church it's a seed that, that has led thousands upon thousands of others to faith and faithfulness. The seed that led many of us in this room to name Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Stephen's story is a story that's worth remembering because it gives us an example of, of, of how to follow. An example of someone who even under the extreme pressure and pain did not compromise on the truth. is a reminder for Christians today as we face opposition in a world that is increasingly becoming more hostile to the things of God. It's just an example of how to stand. You know, I, I sometimes insert myself in the story. I know you do that too. The time last year we walked through the story of Nehemiah and, and, and I, I like to think of ourselves as heroes, right? 
this was up to us. If carrying on God's plan was up to us, would we have been faithful as Stephen? Damascus, Paul is going to have a Copernican 
was introduced to the grace and the mercy of God and everything in his life changes including his name and that's a reminder to you and me that if God can change the heart of a murderer to someone who hated God and the things of God that he can change our hearts as well and he can change the heart of those people in our love that, that in our lives right now
Father, would you press against those areas in our lives, areas where we think that we are in control, areas that we are trying to be Lord instead of allowing you to be Lord. Father, would you draw us to yourself, and if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, in the quiet of this away from God, if we feel that the, the, the Bible says that, that if there's conviction, that's a sign that you know Him. And so if there's an area that God's pressing against this morning, that, that, that's, that's the love of your Heavenly Father's trying to draw you back. First John 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sin, if we can confess our failure to Him, serve a God that his plan is so great and he's so sovereign that nothing we can do can thwart that plan. That we can be a part of it. And when we are, this is the most exciting, fulfilling thing that we could ever do. God, may 